Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Unsuckable Podcast. My name is Manuel Fede and I'm once again joined by Adrian who is all over Europe. Adrian, how is it going? It's good. It's good. I just took the train this morning actually from Paris to Amsterdam. So I'm a little bit tired, but there's nothing like a walk around. The fresh air of Amsterdam, that's something that I really noticed, Manu, is that the air is so fresh in comparison to Paris. And I guess that it's a credit to urban planning with less cars, more bikes, more walkability. And of course, the the beautiful ocean air. Uh, Love Amsterdam. I lived there for a year. I miss it a lot. Um, Great city. Really jealous. Um, Hope you have a ton of fun. But um, yeah, next I want to introduce Josh. Uh, Josh, you were probably the only guy more upset on Twitter than I was this week. So um, how are you doing otherwise? I'm doing good. Personally, I'm not, I'm not having as much fun as Adrian is being over in Amsterdam. I was there as well. Very, very jealous he's there. But yeah, I mean, it was an interesting week. A couple big wins for uh, the Canadian national team, which we'll probably get into. And, and one massive loss, in, in my opinion, which related to Dortmund, which we'll also get into. But I'm excited to be here with the boys and excited to get going with the podcast. Yeah, uh, I think before we get to that section, Josh, you'll probably need to have, take a little bit of a breath. You know, relax and you'll be good. Um, but yeah, <laughs> to round up our our roundtable, I guess, uh, is once again, Filippo. Filippo, how are you doing? I'm doing good, man. Just a little upset that Adrian just traveled abroad, didn't send an invitation for us. He just left, right? He just left Canada and didn't really mention us. But I'm doing good. A little upset with a couple things with the United States roster. Oli lives again with Manchester United. But besides that, in regards to personal life, everything's good. This could be an emotional podcast, but maybe Adrian will bring us back some gifts. What do you think about that? Hopefully, I hope so, Adrian. What do you What do you got for us there? I can bring bring you back a uh, some pancakes. How's that sound, boys? How about that IX third kit, the three little birds? How about you get that in Amsterdam for all of us? We'll pay you. We'll pay you. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We'll just pull it out of the uh, out of the podcast budget, I guess. Right. <laughs> Could be the new dress code. <laughs> okay, guys. But um, actually, let's start with a little bit of a Dutch theme. I'm just kidding. It really is only a tiny bit of a Dutch theme. Uh, and that's Antonio Conte's first game uh, for, for Tottenham. As the new head coach of Tottenham, a little bit of a, you know, still thinking that this announcement is um, super fascinating, weird, a lot of things. Um, 
I guess I go to you first there, Adrian. What did you make of Antonio Conte's first game um, against in the, in the Europa League against Vitesse Arnhem? I think that the best way to sort of sum up the entire match was that it was just it was just good fun. It was fun to see Tottenham change up their shape. Obviously, Conte, he didn't go with a 3-5-2, but he went with a 3-4-3. And they looked decent. I mean, three goals scored in that first half hour. Of course, there was also a, <laughs> a little own goal to help them out. There was a red card towards the end of the match as well. And, you know, it, there were some hallmarks already, which was fascinating, of a Conte team with the way that they would sort of build up from the back through from their defenders. And sort of that, that goal from Lucas Mora, that second goal that they scored, looked reminiscent of what we sort of saw at Inter last season. So I think that there's definite signs already. Maybe it could just be an incredible new manager bounce, but there are some signs that this, you know, this might work out, Manu. This might work out. Okay. Uh, what do you think, Adrian? Is this going to work? I mean, I, I like to think so. Now, I think if people have been listening to the past few episodes, they, they'll probably know that I'm a big fan of Antonio Conte. And I think that... It's such a strange one because as we spoke about last time, if he came into this without assurances that he's going to get the funding and if Tottenham came into this thinking that they can just not give him the funding and he's going to be a happy camper, then there's only one way that it can go. So I like to think that if he is given the money that he needs to help beef up this squad just a little bit more, I think that it could work off the basis of him just being a fantastic coach and having success everywhere he goes. Yeah, but um, maybe bring in Josh here as well. Josh, Tottenham is not exactly a team where funding is widely made available. Absolutely not. And that was my big concern around Antonio Conte was the fact that he was going to come in here, demand the world, and kind of do the full circle of what it's like to actually have Antonio Conte as a manager. And and when he when everything comes push to shove, he'll end up leaving. But I think the way to describe that first match was this is what Tottenham is. You saw the best of Tottenham, and then you quickly saw the worst of Tottenham. And luckily for Antonio Conte, he did get away with the three points, which is vital because crashing out in the Europa Conference League group stage would be humiliating. Uh, but yeah, I think it's going to be a, a big roller coaster. And whether I think it's going to work or not, it's going to be enjoyable to watch. What do you think, Filippo? What do you make of this first game? And in, in 90 minutes, is it's just 90 minutes, right? Like It feels like with Tottenham, there is... It's such a big project and there's so much to do. And to just take one game it, after such short time of being in charge is, is really just difficult. But what do you think of all this? Yeah, uh, the first thing is I don't follow Tottenham that much. I avoid follow, following finished clubs at this point of my life, even though even though I guess we could put Manchester United in that category right now, at least for the time being with the coach we have, the manager. But I, I think we can't look into this game too much, right? Conte hasn't had time to really implement much. Obviously, the change in shape, like Adrian said, is something to look forward to for the Tottenham fans. But I wouldn't look into it too much. We need a larger sample. Give them two, three months. Let's see where they are. They need to be patient with it. Conte has got the job done in the past. So if, they're gonna, if they took that risk of firing a coach early in the season, getting a new coach, they're going to have to have some patience with them. Let's see how it does. Yeah, it's definitely a long-term long-term project and a small sample size. Exciting, I think, if you're a Tottenham fan. I'm not, so let's move on to the next topic, which is Newcastle United. And they were, you know, on the verge of signing Unai Emery. It seemed all done and dusted when we did the show last. And then the next day, Unai Emery realized that he was in love with the city of Villarreal and the club and 
uh, probably the weather as well. Um, you know, preferring southern warm Spain to cold, wet Newcastle. Can't really blame him. Uh, I think I would have made the same decision. But that put Newcastle back to the drawing board. And it now looks like Howe is going to take over the job. Before we talk about that, it's really interesting what is going on at Newcastle at the moment. Because it seems like they're throwing a, a lot of dirt at the wall when it comes to player signings, coaching signings. And uh, just see to, to see what sticks. And I kind of doubt whether there is actually a plan in place. You know, because... As much money as these new owners have, I, I, I'm hearing that like, the actual sporting aspects of the game is really lacking and that there is very little structure in place. And you heard that a little bit through when Una Emery said, like, oh, I'm not doing this. <laughs> you know, like, I, I have my doubts this is actually going to work. Um, that they're actually going to be able to attract the players that, that we need to survive, that we have the structure in place to to build a club that can be both modern modern and forward thinking. So it seems like that Newcastle was actually trying to put build a build a skyscraper without putting in the foundation first. So the question then is, Filippo, do you think that by signing actually a guy from the Premier League, an experienced Premier League coach like how is that actually the better move? Because it is almost like putting in the foundation first rather than the house. Yeah, so again, Newcastle, the way they have to do this is they have to build for the long term. They can't just think they're going to bring someone in and be successful right away, right? We remember when Manchester City had the takeover many, many years ago, over a decade now, by now. Uh, they struggled in the beginning, right? It wasn't so easy. I remember when they signed Robinho, Elano, Joe, the Brazilians, and they tried to get stuff done, and it took a while. So I think essentially Newcastle needs to build a long-term project, start with a team that, well, first they need to stay in the Premier League, right, this season. Along with that, I don't know what the hiring process is looking like. You just said that Emery um, rejected, so that's out of the way. That won't work. Personally, I just think they need to start with a coach that they believe in for the long term and slowly build upon that and not think they're going to just go next season and come in to win the Premier League if they're still in the Premier League for obvious reasons. Yeah, Adrian, what, what do you think of all of that? I, I, I personally, I actually understand Emery quite a bit when it comes to his decision making there. Because again, like he, ha he has a well-run club and, um, you know, plays Champions League. Why go to Newcastle in a project that seems very much set up for failure at the moment? Yeah, and this was something that, you know, we actually mentioned last week was, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if Amanda Staveley and the rest of the Newcastle board are having a difficult time attracting these bigger names. We saw them go through Fonseca, Lucien Favre, Gattuso was thrown in there as well. And so now they've landed on Eddie Howe. And this makes a little bit more logical sense in some ways because Eddie Howe was a guy, you know, he's, he's been through it all. He's been through all the leagues. There's a chance Newcastle will go down. He's been in the championship before. He took Bournemouth from, you know, in a really bad position in League Two all the way up to the Premier League. So like you said, putting the foundations before the house, I think that Howe is the guy. And there was a time where he was a very sought-after manager in the Premier League, where they were thinking of, you know, signing him up at Arsenal, and they were going through their turmoil. Maybe a guy that was actually going to follow up Unai Emery. So it's all sort of coming full circle. But if I am being honest, I think that ultimately Eddie Howe is probably the right decision. And if they do sort of take their time at building this club, like Filippo said, then that, I think that Eddie Howe, with what he did at Bournemouth, with the limited funds he had at one time, is maybe the right guy to do this. 
Yeah, Joshua, what do you think? I mean, when you look at Eddie Howe's profile, um, you know, was a Portsmouth, was a Bournemouth, worked for a long time at Bournemouth, um, and, you know, was quite successful there in charge of 355 games. So he has the experience of working not only just in the Premier League, but also fighting against relegation. Um, what do you think? It's it's probably is just like, as we suggested, putting the foundation in first, isn't it? It, it absolutely is. And it's a, I, I kind of make it the connection to the Tottenham-esque manager hunt that they had where they were linked to all these names, and including Antonio Conte, and then landed on Nuno. But the, the thing with, with Tottenham is they're obviously a little bit higher up and they're, they're expecting to compete for Champions League. So they were looking to get a manager like that and struck out. The difference with Newcastle is I don't, I personally don't think this is going to be the similar story of the likes of PSG and, and, and Manchester City. I just don't think that foundation is there. So bringing in a, a little higher quality manager, with no disrespect to Eddie Howe, if, if you got Benitez, you got you got Alfonseca, you brought in Emery. I think they would have not played to their strength taking on a relegation-bound team because their first goal being in charge would be to save them from relegation. Eddie Howe, like we've talked about, has got experience at all levels in the in England, and he should be able to come in and take this group that a similar group he's wor- used to working with and do the job to save them from relegation and move forward that way. Because I don't think he's a long-term goal, but I think he's the now goal until some type of structure is put into place moving forward. Otherwise, if I think if you brought in Una Emery, who should no reason leave Villarreal for this for this gig, I think it, it would have been a struggle. I think he would have found frustration in England once again. Yeah, I, I absolutely go along with everything you guys said. Um, speaking of Emery, uh, his Villarreal side won 2-0 on Tuesday in the Champions League against Young Boys. Um, they're on a good path of maybe even coming out of this group. So, yeah, let's let's move on to the Champions League, guys. And, um, Josh, deep breath now, okay, before we start with this. The Mats Hummels red card. I, I think before you get all emotional about it, which I think you're quite right to be emotional about, let me just recap because I, I did speak to some people about this refereeing decision and you know they all disagreed with the red card. First and foremost, it was not a red card. Everyone disagreed with that decision in itself. But you know, as a journalist, you're not just supposed to judge or be like judge and say, okay, well, this was a red card or not. You need to also get to the to the bottom of how the decision making process was made and in this case the the foul in real time he did launch his leg was off the ground which in real time looks bad right um you have the fact that anthony jumps up and real time again that looks like he's he's getting hit hard um of course then in the replay you see he actually jumps up lands on homeless and then Prima Donna wise rolls himself around the ground, very Neymar-esque, and um, that's all in the replay, right? UEFA ahead of the season set a very high benchmark when it comes to VAR decisions. So in this case, there was a check, and um, the foul was not was not deemed a clear and obvious error, right? So decision on the field stands. That of course you know, is different in other leagues. In the Bundesliga, for example, that would have been overturned. In the Premier League, even though VR is generally a mess there as well, it would have been overturned. Not so sure about Major League Soccer because um, I don't. I think they use clear and obvious error for everything in Major League Soccer and don't quite understand the terminology, but not sure it would have been overturned there. But, you know, that is how we got there. So now, Josh, 
um, you are a Borussia Dortmund fan club on this on the show. How do you feel about this red card and what did it actually mean for the match? Well, I need to, to vent. So I'm going to try to do it in a different way than I was anticipating, given our conversation we actually had before the podcast. But the way I looked at it, like looking at it from a purely fan perspective, is that it ruined the match. When you get it, it's one of those sports where like if you get a red card very early on in the match, it's over. And I was on Twitter. I was crying about it, like, you know, like a drama queen, but had a, had a few Ajax fans reaching out to me being like, Josh, it didn't matter that it was a red or it wasn't red. You were given a soft penalty. And it's like, that doesn't change the match. Handing us a soft penalty in the first half and half and making us play also, down. <laughs> sorry to interrupt there. That penalty by the letter of the law. And again, I talk to people that matter. He, he runs, Bellingham runs into full speed into the box. The defender crosses over and, and hits him. That it's a clear penalty decision. Whether yeah. you like the penalty or not, by, by the letter of the law, that's a penalty. Sorry, I'm interrupting you. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I, I thought it was a penalty. You could say it's soft, but yeah, by the letter of the law... It's a penalty. Regardless, it didn't matter when we were down to the 30 minute mark with a red card, taking out one of our best defenders, the game eventually was going to break and and Ajax was going to win. The match was decided from that decision. And whether you want to hear me cry about it, if it was a red or it wasn't, which I don't believe it was, whether you want to hear me cry or not, whether Anthony made the most of it, which he obviously did if you watch the replay, the biggest issue I have is the continuity between what the rules is going to be league versus the Champions League, Europa League, whatever it is. You can't have players going into challenges like that, knowing that it could drastically decide the outcome of the match in league play. And then all of a sudden in the Champions League, they have to think about it differently. There has to be something there to make sure that this kind of thing doesn't happen because everyone who watched it, like you said, that is a clear and obvious mistake. It was not a red card to me, but the letter of the law and apparently that the Champions League are making it stricter, but it just, it just doesn't make sense. It makes it more difficult on players and these decisions matter. More than likely, Dortmund will get through, but let's say they slip up. They're, they've had an injury-riddled season, and they lose to Sporting, and they draw against Besiktas, and they get knocked out of the Champions League. A lot of it's going to go back to what if or what could have happened from that Ajax match. I thought it was a poor decision, and there has to be some continuity between the leagues and the Champions League, in my opinion. Yeah, the Matsumo said after the game that Anthony is a great player, and now he just needs to learn to become a great sportsman. Filippo, it, it, he did sell that well, didn't he? Yeah, there, there's a couple things I want to touch upon there. A little bit in the Brazilian culture and also in regards to what Josh was saying. In my opinion, it wasn't a red card. That wasn't a red card in my opinion. But usually what I have more problems with the refs in VAR is consistency, right? If you're going to give a red card for that, make sure to give a red card for every single play in a similar situation. But we haven't seen that, right? Depending on the situation, a play like that will be given a yellow. For that situation, was given a red. The problem with refs is when there's lack of consistency among a league a competition or different competitions that same clubs are playing for in regards to Anthony that's a very Brazilian way to play right so I was telling you guys before the podcast in in Brazilian pickup culture which is probably one of the the biggest reasons why Brazil is successful in soccer is the culture there the pickup culture and when you're playing pickup soccer in Brazil it's more important to draw a foul, diving, um, humiliate your opponent with a nutmeg, a rainbow flick, whatever it is. It's more important than scoring a goal. And you see that in the play with Anthony. He's trying to humiliate all his opponents, and then he he does get hit. It is a foul. But then he starts flopping around, over-exaggerating the whole play and selling it in a very Brazilian-like style, right? It's a very Brazilian thing to do in soccer, especially when you play pickup in South America. So 
I don't agree with it. And as a Brazilian myself, an American, I don't really agree with what happened with Anthony. He does need to learn some sportsmanship right there. But you're not going to change a whole country. I'm sorry. That's how Brazil plays. And it'll continue to be like this for, I think, for our whole lives, if I'm going to be honest. Yeah, I also, that's why we have VR, right? To catch that sort of stuff. Um, and Anthony, and you, you saw Anthony actually apologized after that, during the game, even, you know, speaking to Hummels and said to him, and it was quite clear when you, when you looked at the conversation, and he's like, this is not a rat and it will be overturned. And I mean, here we are. Adrian, do you have any last thoughts on this? Because, you know, I personally, Still, like I, I think Dortmund lost the game at that moment, and um, again, like I don't think it was a red card. Where I had a few Dortmund fans being very emotional me at me at Twitter because it said like I say it was a debatable red card because you know um, referees did say they can understand why the why he came to that decision. But what's your thoughts on all of this? It's one of those red cards that you absolutely hate to see, especially given the time of the match in which it occurred. And I think that taking that into consideration, maybe the referee should be absolutely 100% sure at that point and go and take a second look at it at the monitor. I mean, I think that the video assistant referee sort of has that obligation to say to him, yes, he came in perhaps with some excessive force, if that is the reason as to why he thought that he should send him off. But I think you should take a second look at it just because this looks like a yellow, at most an orange card, which of course doesn't exist. Believe it or not, I made that joke on my channel before and people tried to tell me that the orange card doesn't exist. Thank you so much to those people. Um, but yeah, I I feel like it's one of those red cards that when you see it, you just cannot feel good about it. It just sort of makes your stomach turn a little bit. And you you got to feel for Dortmund because as Josh said, sporting has looked good against Besiktas. And if they are to get a win against Dortmund, because as Josh said, Dortmund do have a lot of injuries, it could happen. This could be a season-changing red card. You guys just need to watch the Brazilian League and see how often that Anthony moments happen. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's it's definitely, I mean, again, this is why we have VR, right? To, to catch this sort of stuff and, and get rid of it. Um, Filippo, we have to talk about United who once again got saved. Um, I think we're now in game two of Ole's um, rescue attempt, right? He got he was given three games. This was game two. Ronaldo rescues him um, this time. You think it's still enough for him? You know, is, is the third game going to be the one where he's going to rescue his job or not? Well, so it's complicated, right? So, yeah, Ronaldo definitely saved him. Got a goal and assist against Tottenham, which we did win 3-0. But, again, Tottenham wasn't really doing very well themselves. And we saw that as they did have to get a new manager right after that, right? <laughs> Losing to Oli was unacceptable at that point. And then we play Atalanta, and we just didn't play well again, right? It's very normal with Oli to not play well. And I guess a draw in Italy is not the worst result. But again, two goals scored by Ronaldo. Both goals scored very late in each half. One in the first half, one in the second half. I don't know, man. We're going to play Manchester City tomorrow. We're recording this on Friday. Um, depending on what Oli does, it's another game we could get trashed, just like Liverpool. But you never know with Oli. We could pull out a 1-0 win, and there you go. He survives for another few months, and we just don't win a trophy. We're just going to continue to be like this. Um, never going to live up to the expectation and the cost of this team. 
So I, I don't know what to expect from Ole anymore, man. Um, I wish we got a high caliber manager. He is not. I think that's the one thing I'm certain of and many Manchester United fans as well, but it is what it is. Yeah, the Ole saga continues. Um, final one on this in this chapter. Adrian, you watched the Benfica game, of course. I'm, I'm sorry. Um, Bayern Munich did Bayern Munich things. Uh, Benfica couldn't find the, the Gladbach miracle cure to, to overturn this one. Uh, Lewandowski with a hat-trick. Uh, his goal uh, scores 79, 80 and 81 in 100 games in the Champions League. Um, that's 0.81 Champions League goals per game. Uh, that's a remarkable statistic. And he seems to be just getting better and better and better the older he gets. Um, I think he should win the Ballon d'Or. I think he is the best striker in the world. And probably over the last two years, and the Ballon d'Or wasn't awarded last year, right? Because uh, I guess France football didn't want to hand it out because they canceled their league um, as the only top competition that got canceled. He should be getting it this year, shouldn't he? Yeah, I I think I would agree with you there. I mean, just looking back on that match against Benfica, that goal in which the touch to take it around the defender and then to just chip it over Vlakadimos and goal was just superb. His 28th hat trick of his career, I believe. And it's it's just more of the same for Robert Lewandowski. I've I swear, if you go on Twitter and you have this discussion of who should win the Ballon d'Or and who's having the best season, people bring up Benzema, people bring up Salah. It's gotten to the point where people are almost, and I mean this in the best way possible, people are almost bored of how many goals that Robert Lewandowski is scoring. That's how much of a regular occurrence it is at this point. So, you know, he was absolutely robbed to not get it in 2020. He deserved it. He should have had it. Um, and if you look at someone like... Lionel Messi, who there's been some links, some leaks, sorry, I should say, that potentially he's going to win it. Yes, he did get that Copa Sudamericana and I believe a Copa del Rey with a terrible FC Barcelona team. So maybe maybe he is worthy of getting that uh, Ballon d'Or again. But if you just look at Lewandowski over the last few years, it's it would be an absolute crime for him to never get his hands on that trophy, wouldn't it? Yeah, but Filippo, Messi plays at PSG, so that's an automatic Ballon d'Or, isn't it? Yeah, so let me just fix one thing Adrian said before someone calls it out. Adrian knows the name. It's Copa America. He said Copa, Copa Sudamericana is the the Europa League of South America. So uh, the Copa America, yeah, Messi won. But again, let's add some context to it. He was pretty good throughout the tournament, Argentina's best player. But he completely disappeared in the final. Let's not forget that, right? Neymar was probably the best player in that game, surprisingly. And then for Argentina, Di Maria was the difference maker, right? Messi wasn't very good in the final. Now, yeah, the thing the thing is the Ballon d'Or became more of like a marketing award more than anything. So I wouldn't be surprised if it goes to Messi. And yeah, I'm not hating on Messi. I still think he's one of the greatest to ever play. Probably the most talented one of this of the current players around, but... If you're going to give it to someone, I would definitely give it to Lewandowski for this season. But, you know, doesn't play for PSG, plays for Bayern. Bayern's more about results rather than marketing. He's also Polish, right? He's not Brazilian or Argentine. So, yeah, I'm going to go with, um, I would give it to Lewandowski, but it's probably going to go to Messi. Yeah, and that would be a crime, but this is why these individual award shows a little bit BS, <laughs> for lack of better terminology. It's, it's a team game after all. Yeah, I think Lewandowski, without a doubt, over the last two years has been the best player in the world. And he's currently in his current form, is probably the best player in the world. Uh, one of the players that was one of the best players in the world, 
and um, defined an entire generation at Barcelona is Harvey. Uh, Savi, sorry, and uh, he looks like he could become the new head coach at Barcelona, Josh. Yes, and I'm excited for it. I've watched Barcelona a lot this year just because they just seem like a, a disaster right in front of your eyes that you just you need to invest a little bit in. And and I've been to Barcelona. I've 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 been to the Camp Nou, and it was it was incredible. So I do have that that love for Barca in there. And, and just I was so curious about what this season was going to look like with Messi leaving, Griezmann leaving bringing in players like Luke Dion, having Coleman still there, which the fans obviously didn't want. And I think the big reason that, that Xavi's going to be successful is everyone relates it back to, well, look at where Zidane was coaching before he came and being down in, in, in the academy and coming his way up there. Well, Xavi obviously didn't take that route, but he's coaching in Qatar, which you can look at that league however which you want to. But it, in my opinion, is probably higher in dealing with professionals and de- dealing with men than it is to come from the, the academy and coming into this Barca side, he, it's a romantic story. He's someone that the the supporters can get around because let's not forget they just had a, recently had a home match in a ninety nine thousand capacity stadium where they had thirty thousand. They need this. The fans of this club need something to believe in, and I promise you, having Shabby in the dugout over Ronald Koeman will get some excitement around these guys. Hopefully, the injury concerns can can go away and they can somehow turn the season around. Because I really like Shabby and I really hope he's successful and finds similar success in some way, shape, or form, like Zidane did. Yeah, averaged uh, 2.19 points at um, Al-Sat in, in Qatar, Qatar's, uh, Qatar's Super League. Um, Adrian, is that enough for you to take the Barcelona job? I mean, it's it's debatable. It is coaching experience of some kind, and that's more than you know some managers get when they're first appointed. But it's, I think that... Something that almost works against him in a sense is the fact of how good Zidane and Guardiola were at the respective clubs that they were legends at. And I think that they sort of skewed the data in a sense or skewed the expectation that you do you bring in a club legend and it's an instant fix to all your problems. Now, I think that it is a good move still because you have guys like, you know, Danny Alves in the past. When he was speaking during Pep Guardiola's documentary, he said that the first version was Cruyff. Then Guardiola was version two. And Xavi, when he comes back to Barcelona, is going to be version three, the next coach to take them to that next level to start another sort of dynasty, if you will. So I think that he does have that going for him. And I think that it was also a good move by the board in that they're almost taking a page out of the Manchester United book because the Barcelona crowd is not going to turn on Xavi. So it does buy them some time. And I think that they are finally starting to go back to their roots, or at least I would hope so, because you know, sort of reincorporating La Masia back into the squad, going back to their roots and their identity. He certainly has the DNA. So there's potential for it to work out. And I certainly hope that it does because you wouldn't want to see his reputation. Not that it would be tarnished based off of how he was as a player, but you wouldn't want any sort of ill will towards him. Yeah, Adrian, I I agree with absolutely everything you're saying. And and also a a big part for me is who wants this Barca job mid-season like this? Who wants to walk into, no offense, this dumpster fire and try to turn it around, knowing that Xavi is the guy that the fans want? And if he isn't going to come in, when is he going to come in? And who's going to come in? Are you going to get Roberto Martinez, who I don't know he could do it at this level? I I don't think he's... I, I think he is ready for the job, but I also I also think that he is the best choice because I don't know exactly what the market was going to look like to bring in a manager with the quality of Pep Guardiola. I don't know what this board can afford, but I think the one thing that you can count on is one, getting fans to invest back in. Because like I said, it just killed me. I was at that stadium. It killed me to see that 30,000 was at, at one of the home matches. That is not enough, but 
Chappie's going to bring passion. He's going to bring the hope and, and belief, and and he knows this club better than than anyone. And, and I'm really excited to see what he can do. And having Nico Gonzalez having a great season so far, a youngster as well, Gabby. There's there's a lot of pieces there, and I think that giving giving him time, which he will get, he could be the man to try to turn the ship in at least the right direction going forward. What's your made round this all up, Filippo? What's your thoughts on this appointment? Yeah, I agree with everything they said right there. Um, I don't want to be that guy that just agrees with everything, but it's what Agent said. It's Barcelona maybe trying to go back to their roots, right? Start to use La Masia a little bit more. And Xavi has been in Barcelona. Well, he left, obviously, after he retired, but he was in Barcelona in the early 90s, went through the youth system, you know, his career, professional career. If anyone knows Barcelona, that's Xavi, and let's wish him the best. And again, it's what they said. It's It will buy them time as well because – the fans will do everything they can to not hate on Xavi. So I think that's a smart move from them. Will it work? Only time will tell. I don't know how Xavi has been doing in Qatar. I know you mentioned, but I, I haven't been following, so I don't know if he's good enough or not. We're about to find out. Yeah, I, I think it's an interesting appointment. Um, we'll see. I, I'm curious. Maybe it will work out. Maybe it's Pep Guardiola 2.0. Um, I wish them all the best. Club definitely needs something to turn things around, but... The NBA is back, and at DraftKings Sportsbook, an authorized sports betting partner of the NBA, the key to victory is a strong starting five. New customers can bet just $5 on any NBA team to win their game, and if they do, you win $200 in free bets. So why not make your roster Washington, 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 and, oh yeah, Washington. DraftKings Sportsbook customers can also get skin in the game with new same-game parlays. Combine multiple bets from the same game for a bigger payout. The more legs you add, the more money you can win. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable. Best of all, you can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code TBPN. Bet just $5 on any NBA team to win their game and win $200 in free bets. If they win, you win with promo code TBPN this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an authorized sports betting partner of the NBA. Must be 21 or older. New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Filippo, I'm actually going to stay with you because I know you have lots of thoughts on this next topic. And the United States roster. We have we have a bunch of North America topics in this last section before we call it a day. And I, I feel like this is your time maybe to vent just a little bit. The United States roster dropped. Um, there's a few things that I like about this roster before you get to go off and uh, take it all apart. But I, I like the fact that Jesus Ferreira was called up, for example, um, I like the fact that um, the forward bunch looks good. I'm not sure Pulisic is actually fit enough to play. Um, that remains to be seen. And I, I absolutely love that Joe Scali was called up. I think he really deserves it. Um, seeing him playing in Gladbach, he has probably is the best informed right back in this team. But what happened to Brooks, man? Why is he not in the, in the side? All right, let's go. Let's go by parts and I'll try to make this quick. So... John Brooks makes no sense to me that he's not in the roster, right? Uh, the claims are that Greg Berhalter claimed that John Brooks ne needs to pick up better form, but it doesn't make any sense. His form is not that poor at the club. If you watch the past two games, he was fine, and he's playing at a high level. One of the top teams in Bundesliga, Wolfsburg, is getting back to their good old form. 
They're in the Champions League, doing fine as well. And he left them out, right? He left John Brooks out. And then he brings in a guy like Mark McKenzie that is struggling to get minutes at Genk in Belgium and also wasn't good for the United States in camp. The, hasn't been good for the United States in a few games, actually, to be fair. Now, adding to Joe Scali, yeah, I was very happy that Joe Scali was added. He's been pretty good in Bundesliga. He even made the team of the week. But here's the problem I have with it, Manuel. And I don't know if you know, I've heard that he was a late addition. You know what that means? That means he was the one that replaced Serginho Des, so because Des is injured. So that means Scali was not going to be in the roster. That means he might not even play. That that bothers me quite a bit. Um, but yeah, well, we don't know. Maybe he'll play. There's also a couple other snubs that we need to mention, right? Conrad de la Fuente, which he's been having ups and downs in Marseille, and he was left out. Luca de la Torre, which is definitely a better option than some of the midfielders we brought, like Legette, like Roldan. Along with that, um, just to wrap it up, I did love the inclusion of Jesus Ferreira. I think it was a pretty good inclusion. He's been having a great season with FC Dallas, but he's been playing as a 10. And Greg Berhalter doesn't play with 10s. So he's going to have to put Jesus Ferreira as a winger or as a 9 or a false 9. I don't know how that's going to go. And he only brought one true center forward, and that's Ricardo Pepe. We have no other one. He could have brought in maybe Daryl DK. And I also think the exclusion of Mihailovic has to be mentioned as well. He's been doing pretty damn good. I'm going to watch him this weekend against Orlando City. And I think he could have done a better job than Sebastian Lejet at the eight, per se. But that's just me summarizing very quickly the roster of the United States. I think Mihailovic, I noticed that too, 15 assists in MLS this year. He, he would have deserved a call up, right, Filippo? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and if Greg is going to use the form excuse to leave Brooks out, and I guess Brooks is an experienced guy, so he's ex experience doesn't matter for Brooks, and form took him out. If you're going to do that, then bring Mihailovic, which is in much better form than Sebastian Legette, per se. So, yeah, again, um, Greg Berhalter, when it comes to that, there's no real logic it's just like this guy's my favorite i'm gonna bring him and you have to buy my bs excuse accept it and shut up that's usually how he works yeah josh the, the new canada roster dropped today as well and um the big one of course was the the, the pickup of Ike Upo. um i personally think great great pickup another not a young exciting striker um a player that is going to add a lot of depth at center forward position and you know the As great as that is, and I, I really think it is fantastic, you know, you can't have enough center forwards. Ask, ask Filippo and, uh, about the US and the lack of their center forward position. But, um, Josh, at some point, Hurtman will need to find some defenders, doesn't he? Yeah. I, the, the roster was exactly what we were expecting. The only thing that was there that didn't really bug me because he has performed well for the Canadian national team, but it is Cavallini given the fact that he's not starting, that he's not in form, and the f also the big fact that he's had that injury, he, he is in there. That tells me that since we took four forwards, we may see the 3-5-2 shape. But yeah, all in all, it's a very strong Canadian national team roster. Really excited about the new recruitment. Herman is, is just showing this is why he's taking this, this side to new levels, that he's always thinking, he's always recruiting. He figured out how to get a player to switch over that a lot of people didn't even realize was eligible, which is, which is fantastic. And he just doesn't ever stop working for the job, but yeah, referring to the defenders, there are, there are a few youngsters out there. Justin Smith's a big one in the Nice system right now. If we could somehow convince him to go, he'll be a nice long-term option. Because unfortunately for us, Vittoria, who's been just such an amazing servant for this, for this national side, he is getting older, but 
there are a few little gems in there. Miller, Alistair Johnson taking their, their games to the, another level. But yeah, it is definitely an area we're hoping for. And a lot of the Canadians haven't quite accepted the fact that Tomori is, is gone for good. And it is a small chance, chance Tomori could come back. I think it takes, he would have to wait for five years and legal frameworks is very complicated. So I, I personally agree with you. I think he's gone. Cavallini surprised me too. Uh, I guess maybe because uh, they're not quite sure if Okbe can gel right away with this group. So it's good to have him in there. But Cavallini has not been good for the Vancouver Whitecaps. You know, um, there's been a lot of problems with him at that squad. And um was very disappointed when he came on against LA LAFC midweek in a game. If it had the Whitecaps won it, they had clinched a playoff spot. I'm going to talk about that in a second. But I don't know if Cavallini is still good enough to play for this team, considering the players that we now are bringing in and getting younger and you know it, we're going to we're going to face opposition where you will have to be fast in the counter attack and Cavallini is just not it so I was a little surprised about him coming in I'm happy Okbe is there so maybe that's a long-term replacement for Cavallini wait and see um I mentioned MLS decision day and the Whitecaps we did the math and it seems like they're in they can even afford to lose a draw will get them in for sure um, a win can see them go as high as fifth, depending on the other results. Um, MLS decision day this year is going to be a lot of fun, Filippo. Is a, I, I think you couldn't have made it or scheduled it any better than this. A final day where the entire Eastern Conference is playing, the entire Western Conference is playing. There's still a lot on the line. I mean, Don Gaba must be rubbing his hands. Yeah, mostly for the West, right? If you look into the West, there's a battle there for for seeds three through one, which if many don't know, the number one seed gets a buy. So that's a pretty big deal along with home advantage and all that. So there's a lot going on in the, the, the West. Now, in the East, we already know that the New England took over the first seed and then there's a battle there. There is other teams that could make it there, but I think mostly the battles between Montreal, Orlando City and New York Red Bulls the three fighting for two spots. And yeah, there's teams that can still make it there depending on a combination of results. But the interesting game, at least on the East, and I follow the East a little bit more, Orlando City will face Montreal. Montreal is in eighth. Orlando's in sixth. Seventh place qualifies. So essentially Montreal has to beat Orlando and Orlando can play for a draw. This will be an interesting one. I'm going to be watching because I'm an Orlando fan. And again, Jordi Mihailovic has been having his way this season. In regards to the West that you said, yeah, there's a lot in stake. Right, the playoff spots, we look into it. You have LA Galaxy facing Minnesota. That's the seventh place versus the fifth. You have Sporting facing RSL. That's the eighth place versus the second seed that's also fighting for the first seed. Hopefully, I'm not getting too confusing here, Manuel, and I'm taking some of your time. But maybe you can talk a little about the West because the West has a lot in stake. Yeah, it's 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 extremely interesting. You know, um, three teams fighting for first. And as you said, it's very important to be first, right? It gives you home advantage all the way possibly even in the final, depending what happens with um, New England. So um, it's an important one. Um, but also, you know, Los Angeles can still get in it. Uh, Salt Lake can still get in it. Vancouver are in a very comfortable position, as I said, and they're playing the Sounders, though, you know, a team that regularly beats them. It's a big rivalry here as well. Um, so, I mean, there's a, there is that, the fact that, you know, they they want to probably win this game because it's a rivalry, but also a win would just see them go a little bit further up, which is important. And the important thing too is wins are the tiebreaker, right? Which is why Minnesota is ahead of the, the Whitecaps at the moment. 
Um, I'm actually at that game, so I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, I think I a few weeks ago I thought that's my final game of the season, but now there's a chance, of course, that the the White Cups can advance. But it's a big day, Filippo. Yeah, and uh, that's that's awesome that you're going to be in the game too. But remember, the Sounders have also been in surprisingly poor form lately. They haven't won the past five games, um, yeah. so that is, that does put Vancouver in a much better situation. It's not the same Sounders we saw early in the season, right? That were somewhat as dominant as New England at one point, I would yeah. say. Uh, but right now they're not. So I think there's more to be interested in the West. And on Sunday, the first round of games are all the Eastern games. I think it's at 3.30 or 3 p.m. Eastern mm-hmm. time. And then at 6, we have all the Western games. So, yeah, there's stuff to watch on the Eastern Conference. I think Orlando and Montreal are probably the game, the game that has more in stake and the more exciting one. But the West, I don't even know where to start. I'm going to be trying to follow like four to five games right there. Yeah, I'm just going to do the one, but like that's because I'm on location, <laughs> obviously. Yeah. Um, and I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be an exciting day. And uh, decision day should be, you know, it, it deserves the label, I feel like, this year. You know, the label decision day is very fitting. And I'm looking forward to it. I, I love it when you go on the final day of the season and there's a lot at stake. This is why this format is so much fun, right? So, yeah, it's going to be great. Um, Josh. No, no, no. One, yeah. one thing to add to what you said before Josh takes over here. Imagine how much more fun decision they would be if there was also promotion relegation at stake. It would have been crazy. So much going on. Yeah. So this is something I love about MLS, the playoff structure, decision day. Add promotion relegation to it, more emotions, more at stake. It would have been a day that we wouldn't even know what to watch. So much going on. Yeah, we would have do an entire show just about it. Um, but here we are. Josh, interesting that uh, Filippo brings up relegation because uh, that could affect, if there was relegation, Toronto would have looked right down the barrel of the gun right there. And uh, Canada's biggest, most important, fantastic club, the center of the universe and anything that is related to the sport in this country could still qualify for the CONCACAF Champions League because of their Canadian Championship semi-final win against Pacific FC, the team in the city, located in the city that I live in, in Victoria. Um, I have a lot of thoughts about this game. A lot of them were voiced on Twitter. And of course, I had the entire TFC army, including uh, some of the journalists, or quote-unquote journalists that covered the team, go after me for it. Um, I personally, and I talk to people about this. When I put out criticism out there, it's not unfounded. I actually do make the call, and I did speak to people that were involved in this coin flip. Um, that was very transparent, that no one saw it, including some of the people were, that were involved in part of the coin flip. And um, this game gets hosted at BMO Field in front of 5,100 fans, it's abysmal, it's empty, it's cold, it's rainy. Toronto FC luckily goes through in the end. Alejandro Diaz, big chance to equalize, right? Just at the, the end of the game, but make it 2-2. Um, Pacific FC, of course, previously eliminated uh, the Vancouver Whitecaps. I personally think the, whole, the, the lower division team, and the, the CPL wants to be a first division. They're not yet. MLS is clearly above them still, and that's fair enough. But I think the CPL team should host this game. And this is not about regionalism. Like Forge FC got to host it. If, it wasn't Halif- if Halifax had gone through, I would still say the same thing. This game should be hosted by the CPL team because if Toronto 
the biggest, most important club that put football on the map in this country to use some of the language that I heard on, uh, on Wednesday. If they come to a city like Victoria slash Langford, that stadium is full and that's 7,100 people. And it does adopt to, for the growth of this game in, in this country, which is very important, right? So personally, I think the CPL team should have hosted. Please correct me if you think otherwise, Josh. Yeah, it, I enjoyed watching you on, on Twitter. You were just having having a heyday over there. But uh, you, you made a lot of good points. The, the, the one big thing, because I'm not against the CPL side hosting it. I think if you're looking to grow the sport, and, and it showed. I mean, it, I was debating whether to go to the match. I, I really was. And I'm honestly glad I didn't because that atmosphere just wouldn't have been worth the journey I would have had to take to actually go and sit in a 25,000-person stadium when there was only five in there. And I know I saw it on Twitter whether Pacific would have sold out or not, which I'm very confident it would because it's a different outlook. It's it's Toronto taking on Pacific, and then it's Pacific hosting Toronto. That would have sold out. And it's also just a dimmest atmosphere. I guarantee you playing in front of the, the 5,000 out of the, the 20, 25 looks drastically different than playing in front of 7,000 that is full. But you, it has to be decided ahead of time. I've com- made this comparison for different co- competitions around the world. A big example of that is Syria. Syria sides, which I don't like this, but if you finish first to eighth in Syria the previous season, you're guaranteed to go to the quarterfinals of the Copa Italia, and you're all, all, also the guaranteed home side. But on, on top of that, a recent change in, in the Copa del Rey is that the the bigger t- sides have to have to be the away side. And it's a single knockout. So you don't see that. You see that more competition, that more knockout feel. And with it, we saw Madrid get upset. Uh, it, it's a different way of thinking. I don't like it being done behind closed doors. I think ahead of time, if you're looking to gear towards the the growth, especially helping CPL teams in an all-Canadian tournament, then decide it ahead of time. Be like, we're going to seed it this way or do the draw in front of everyone so everyone knows. Instead of doing it the way that they did, very rushed, very unorganized, and it led to... Uh, unfortunately, a, a disastrous atmosphere at what should have been a, an exciting match. Yeah, the, and Dave Bepokal, of course, the third division teams also automatically host, right? And um, it does make for a better atmosphere when the lower division team hosts. It's it's just a matter of fact. And I think the the Toronto crowd, the, the so-called journalists that cover the game there, they always point at regionalism whenever other parts of the country point out that this isn't fair. And I think you need to be self-reflective and think about what's best for the game. And you need to also think why, what the criticism is really about. It's about the structural issues that we have in this game here in this country and the way it is being reported about. You know, we have people who are directly employed by Toronto FC calling this game. And that's just not right. And there, there is a lot wrong. And I think that was what I was criticizing. And Canada soccer just also needs to be more transparent. And they weren't, and they are to blame for that. They'd have to 100% take the blame for that, that they weren't transparent about how this all worked out. And I think it's an opportunity lost. But we're out of time. I know, Josh, you have to wrap it up. So um, I got you a little message here on this side. There's probably a lot more that we can talk about, and it's not an issue that's going to go anywhere. So we can chat about this a lot more, um, and we'll find the time to chat about it. But until then, guys, thank you very much for listening. We'll be back very soon. Until then, bye-bye.